Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro. To learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into what is going to be a very special episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block, and I am joined by my colleague, Ryan Todd, and we have Lex Sikolin on the other side of the mic. He is the Global Fintech Co-Head at Consensus. So you have the Global Fintech Co-Head and Fintech Frank, so you know it's going to be a fun episode and a very interesting conversation. If you don't know who Lex is, you really should. He's done it all. Asset management, investment banking. The guy founded a robo-advising company. He was a research analyst and head of fintech at Autonomous Research. That company was acquired by Alliance Bernstein. He was known then, when we first met, for his wildly successful blog, The Future of Finance, which is now the fintech blueprint. Before we turned on the equipment, we were talking about Facebook Libra, and this is going to be the focus of the episode My sources have been telling me that they're ramping up hiring, the money is lined up, and of course, last week we saw that they put out their white paper 2.0. In a sense, they are kicking the lofty Libra token idea, that basket of currencies, down the road. They've augmented Libra and are going to start first with single currency stablecoins in addition to Libra. So we're going to see a coin tied to the dollar, a coin tied to the British pound, the euro, so on and so forth. So let's start there, Lex. What do you think of this pivot? (laughs) Um, Thank you for the fantastic introduction. What a a weird time we're in and what a wonderful time to be in the crypto and the fintech industries. I mean, you just couldn't ask for a more bizarre set of circumstances than COVID, CBDCs, digital currencies being released, the concept of you know universal basic income and the bank bailouts, all of that happening at the same time. I think that's super interesting. You know, if you think about the new Libra position, it's really, for me at least, it's really signaling how how the world's coming together on the fiat side. And, you know, China is just launching its own digital currency initiative that it has tight control over. And I can really easily see Libra being one of the first rails for trialing CBDCs, especially because the core currencies that are going to sit inside of the Libra network are going to be 
just traditional fiat stablecoins. They're not going to be some crazy kind of basket that rebalances and so on. And so I see this as a path to a very regulated, very compliance first ecosystem. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on people who like things that are permissionless. It's definitely less ambitious than the original goal that they had laid out in what feels like almost years ago, but it was last summer. It was very wild time at the block for sure. Does it make sense to you in terms of, are you surprised that this is the route they ended up going in, especially given what we saw come out of Washington and the anxieties that lawmakers had over Facebook being in charge of what is essentially a new type of money? I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. But if anything, I'm a little bit worried, to be honest with you. And I think So I always go back to the analogy of what Napster did to music, right? And so the sort of first, uh, in 2001, Napster allowed for peer-to-peer sharing of music files. And so the music labels all had their hair on fire and tried to sue teenagers for having Napster and shut it down and so on. And there was a response by the music industry and they were able to defend for a little bit, but in the longer term, they were overrun by demand for digital services. They didn't have a a really strong defense. With money, money is very different. Money is, it's not just the economy. In many ways, it's an appendage of the state. You know, so the state has sovereignty, which really means it has the sword, the ability to jail people and compel them. In the good old times, uh, if you're a nation state and you wanted to wage war on some neighboring nation state, you would go into debt and you would issue money. And this is sort of in large part the sovereign purpose. And so money was always going to be a harder fight than sharing MP3s. And Bitcoin was and continues to be an absolutely incredible attempt to create peer-to-peer and permissionless economies. But governments will and have to inevitably fight back to retain their power. And I always thought it meant governments would have to create the thing that fights back. They would have to kind of try to shut things down or get the miners or target the on and off ramps, right? The way you would target the person who's running the service. And in this case, when I look at the Libra paper and I look at the language and I look at how it's really just about tokenized fiat moving around and how it's going to have regulated dealers and all these things. Libra is essentially fighting Bitcoin back on the behalf of the Western world or, you know, constituted as nation states. And so that that to me is a surprise. Well, that's the big question, right? When we think about what this moment, this health and financial crisis will mean for money or the financial system, it opens that door to something challenging the dominance of the U.S. dollar. And Libra represents that one side of the argument, right? A sort of free enterprise solution that is really not changing the game that much. And then Bitcoin, which, you know, has been around as the impetus of this space that represents self-sovereignty and the sort of openness that people are so attracted to the cryptocurrency for. And the question is, well, which one will win? Which one will sort of inch forward? Or will we come out of this with the old guard still on top? We don't have to invent all of our answers. History gives you plenty of answers. The good and the depressing news about music is that 
it's still in many ways peer to peer, you know, so when you're when you're launching Netflix or or Spotify, I'm not sure for Spotify, but at least for Netflix, like the technology that distributes video to you is analogous to BitTorrent. It's not like you're downloading one file from Netflix. It's, you know, you, you have a sharded network you're connected to, but it's all through Netflix. And when you're talking about Spotify, you know, I remember the music labels trying to do digital rights management and locking down CDs and the narrative was how all of that was failing. And if you look at things today, Spotify is how people consume music. And in large part, it is, it comes with DRM. Like you, you can only play it through Spotify. And so in many ways, the regulated approach to peer-to-peer file sharing, even though there's a ton of Pirate Bay and BitTorrent stuff going on, the regulated approach is the easiest, the most dominant, the most consumer-friendly approach that survived. And so I do wonder, you know, what's going to happen to the the crypto space and whether developers will shift to networks with 100,000x more in assets and in users than in today's networks and whether that's really going to drive behavior differently. Lex, what are your thoughts on just the growing concern that the actual unit economics or business model behind being a a stablecoin issuer and that the deposits, the things that are backing the coins typically will get some type of yield and that's kind of how the issuer makes money. Is that indefinitely challenged just kind of given the rate environment? And I'm also curious your thoughts as to how you're thinking about Libra with this new white paper, how it differs or compares to say a common service like Venmo. Ooh, difficult question. And I'm going to forget the question too. So the, the, the first bit is the economics of stablecoin providers. So again, we don't have to invent everything from scratch. We can just look at what exists, right? So how do you make money if you're holding money on behalf of somebody else? And so what are examples in finance today? Well, you can be a bank. What does a bank do? The bank takes deposits from individuals and it tells them, hey, just we'll give you a bunch of security and access and a card and so on. You don't have to put your money under the couch, right? So you put money into deposit account and then the bank has that money on their balance sheet and can do lots of things with it. They can lend it out, right? So if they lend it out, they get a return back. They can structure their underwriting so they can have a portfolio of lending. Some of the lending may be very risk averse and some of them might be risk seeking. So I agree with you that in a crazy interest rate environment like the one we have today where a ton of interest rates are just negative and we're going to continue to see money being printed, that net interest income is going to be low. But at the same time, I don't think you know, anyone's ever gone bankrupt holding deposits and being able to loan them out. You know, if anything, if you look at the neobanks uh, in Europe and in the UK, this is their play. They're all trying to get banking licenses, you know, whether it's Revolut and then Monzo already has one or N26 in order to be able to do that net interest income. Uh, and you can always arbitrage, right? So you can go into worse quality credit in order to get higher interest rates. The problem is, if you're doing lending and if you're holding people's deposits, then you're a bank and there's nothing you can do to not be a bank. You just are. You can put things into techno jargon and hide them on a website, but I just wouldn't feel super secure doing that activity and you know not being a bank. 
And 2017 is that lesson, right? Where lots of folks thought they were not being broker dealers uh, or they're not doing investment advice or doing offerings when in fact they, they were doing offerings. The other thing I would point people to is money market funds and cash sweep. Those are other things that look like stable coins. You know, so for example, if you have a Fidelity or a Schwab account, when you buy, you have, you move $100 in and you buy $98 worth of stock and there's $2 that's sitting. So the $2 is sitting in something called a cash sweep, which is often invested in overnight money market funds or cash equivalents, which again, come with their own interest rate. In the crypto world, this has the equivalent of the DeFi lending protocols or some of the centralized services that do OTC lending or, or other margin-like stuff. So I do think there is there is space for yield, but even in that sense, like those are regulated products. And then number two, because the spread is so small, you're only making a couple of basis points, they can only function at scale. So the returns to scale from those products, you know, th there's not a lot of room for lots of competitors. It's going to be two or three, and then everybody else is effectively dead. So in that sense, what is Libra Challenge? Is it is it really competing against the broader landscape of these neobanks long term, or is it still kind of boxed in with a Venmo-like service? Fair enough. So in my mind, Libra is a payment rail. So it is like a Visa or a MasterCard. I think in some ways it is like a PayPal, but you know, no more than Bitcoin is like a PayPal, you know, from the consumer experience side. I can imagine it being much more generic so that it is like a card network. And so you can imagine merchant activity using the Libra network to move the stable coins around. The danger isn't just to compete with the card networks, which by the way, I think both have pulled out from the consortia. It is the programmability. And so, uh, you know, disclosure, I work at Consensus. I'm a huge Ethereum fan. The thing that I find the most interesting about crypto is the idea of running decentralized software, because I think you can put lots and lots of financial infrastructure on decentralized software, whether it's a payment rail or portfolio management or core banking systems, whatever it is. And so the danger that I see is if Libra becomes the default place where CBDCs or stable coins are issued, like if Congress says we are comfortable with Libra because we had all this input on it from a regulatory perspective, and that's where we're going to trial our CBDC, then in addition to that, you also have the massive tech footprint of Silicon Valley, right? So you have billions of users potentially. And that's just going to be a huge developer suck. So today, there's nowhere else really to develop decentralized software other than Ethereum. And so what I'm worried about is if all of a sudden you got a place with a legit regulated currency, which looks like the dollar, and you've got a built-in $2 billion footprint, you know, that just becomes a massive application. Like it just, it becomes a developer magnet and kills the sort of open source ecosystem. <laughs> Well, that would be a grim outlook. I think it's important to note the context underpinning the Libra revamp, if you will. Just the fact that stablecoins have become the dominant Ethereum-based medium of exchange, which to me, hearkening back on 2017 when everything was about ICOs, and then in 2018, we start seeing the stablecoin Cambrian explosion, if you will. And then they kind of seem like a joke, at least, I mean, maybe to me in my naivety. But now we're talking about the aggregate Ethereum-based stablecoin 
market cap increasing 95% year to date. We're talking about a $6.25 billion market. It's even higher um, now. Yeah. So this is citing data from April 20th. So if it's even higher than that, that would be consistent with this conversation since the start of the year, right? Stablecoin weekly transaction volume has consistently outweighed Ether transaction volume three, two, one. At the same time, you have Coinbase's new institutional head joining the firm this Monday in a conversation with the block. He talked about how he sees stable coins as being Coinbase's foot into the door of Wall Street. So I guess my question is, when you look at that context, that backdrop, have we overextended ourselves and the businesses who are basically building their business, placing their bet on this market? Is this a strategy you think will prove to be smart in the long run? <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of neurons are firing. Um, I think the stablecoin stuff. I probably was more bearish than a lot of people on stablecoins, in part because I, you know, I don't think they're like um, they're not an investable asset class yet. It's just a dollar is a dollar, right? Like the best case is the dollar is a dollar. The worst case is somebody had a run on the stablecoin and broke it. And then of course there's the elephant in the room, which is that the dominant stablecoin is, you know, is tether and potentially uncollateralized. And I think people would rather just move past that than kick that hornet's nest anymore, which I think is right. But like, what is a stablecoin? It's either an on-ramp into crypto or it is your cash allocation. So in an asset allocation, you have bonds, stocks, real estate, commodities, et cetera. You know, in the crypto world, that's gonna be Bitcoin and your and your large cap coins. And stablecoin is what you keep your cash in. So it would be somewhere between, you know, five to ten percent of your portfolio, maybe, maybe less, maybe more. You probably want to have less of it. And it's just something you use as the unit of account. And so that kind of makes sense, right? If you look at the market cap of all uh, crypto assets and say 10 billion-ish is stable coins, that gives you the same number as you would in, in a regular portfolio. So I think maybe like if you think about Wall Street, that sort of fits also the um, traditional finance view of what a digital cash should be doing in the investment context. That's very different from the payment rails context. That's very different from I am... You know the. I don't want to say the words Ripple and um, and I'm sorry that I did, do. but you know, none of us yeah, do. You know, but if you talk about the institutional payments use case or wholesale wholesale money movement inside of banks and stuff like that, you know, right now that that use case is very much on private chains. It is on things like Corda primarily. I would say a little bit of enterprise Ethereum. I'd say Fabric is a lot more kind of trade finance or data data sharing type of stuff. So I think there is also, a, there is maybe the word, bridge is not the word, but I don't think stable coins have been used as payments as much as they've been used as like capital markets settlement. So it's hard for me to like draw a deeper conclusion about whether we're like over-indexed on the business or the theme. I don't think that stable coins are like ICOs because they are an enabler. They're not a speculative thing in and of themselves. I do think that when you look at, and just disclaimer, like I think decentralized finance is the most interesting thing I have seen in my entire career and I love it and it's fantastic. Like I legitimately find it to be a beautiful art project. But I do think that 
in many of the DeFi cases is where you have both the most interesting thing and also sort of the most fragile thing, the most flimsy thing, right? Like presuming that what you're putting interest on is meaningful or presuming that what you're leveraging is meaningful. I think all of those pieces are just really fragile. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far, but real quick, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Pax Gold. Pax Gold is the world's only regulated gold token, and it's the fastest and easiest way to own and trade the highest quality physical gold. One Pax Gold token represents one fine troy ounce of a 400 ounce London Good Delivery Gold Bar stored in Brinks's vaults in London. When you buy Pax Gold, you own physical gold. The value of Pax Gold is always directly tied to the real-time market value of gold. PAX-G is an ERC-20 token on Ethereum and can easily be moved or traded anywhere in the world 24-7. With PAX-G, anyone can now own a fraction of an LBM-accredited London Good Delivery Gold Bar, and that's with zero storage fees. Trade it today on leading exchanges like Kraken, FTX, and Ipit, or earn interest on your PAX Gold holdings through Nexo or Crypto.com. Learn more or purchase PAX Gold at Paxos.com slash PAX Gold. I feel like while we have you, we should probably talk about more broader fintech themes, given your role. When you think about consensus and its role in the cryptocurrency space and your role at consensus, to what degree is fintech playing a role in what's going on in our ecosystem and vice yep. versa. That makes sense. So there is, look, our space moves very quickly and people change business models and they change the language around what it is that they do really, really rapidly. And I think consensus has also changed very rapidly and perhaps the world doesn't quite know what it stands for. Of course, it is a foundational organization for Ethereum itself and bootstrapped just a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of projects in the early days of Ethereum. I think we have in large part consensus to thank for uh, certainly for MetaMask, for Infura, for software that allows developers to build on top of Ethereum, making all of that easy for Truffle and tons of other projects that people take for granted. But I think that model of the Venture Production Studio, which was the 2017-2018 model, has gone through a couple of shifts. And maybe not everyone is, is aware of these shifts. So we, we started out as a place where people can get funding or they can get tools and they can find a home as sort of a, you know, an Ethereum misfit to be among their own tribe and be creative. And over time, as more and more projects had been built out, Consensus also built out distribution arm called Solutions. And Solutions were all about and are all about looking at that portfolio and saying, how can we actually put this into production in large organizations? Because the meme for a long time was, you know, let's get institutional money in, let's get the real economy in. So uh, Consensus built out a sales force and a, and a delivery team that was able to deploy a lot of these very experimental projects and prepare the market and tell the story and get you know large multinational organizations and banks excited. And I would say that was the position of the company up through about the end of last year when 
we did another sort of tightening of the strategy, which was to say, after doing dozens and dozens of these digital transformations and trying to put blockchain into fairly conservative and large organizations, you know, there were there was a realization of where the demand was coming from and what the actual successful products were. And so that demand was coming from two places, um, and it was financial services and global trade. So things where you're dealing with digital assets or you're dealing with kind of complex workflows and reconciliation matters, or you're dealing with some part of institutional capital markets and issuance. So things that are blockchain, blockchains are really good at, except in this case, where Ethereum wins is that you're able to design financial software to do the things that normally desktop software or cloud software would do, but you would put that software into the network itself, right? So an equity would have trading embedded into the network and so on. And then the other place where there was a lot of demand was from developers. So developer tooling, spinning up nodes and infrastructure, whether it's enterprise or whether it is kind of direct independent open source, like DAP developers. And so that's still a big footprint in terms of what consensus is focused on, but it gave us the opportunity to sort of reorganize the company and say, look, we're a software, we're an integrated software business. We go from protocol to developer tooling to these financial use cases across the the pieces that I've mentioned. And so, you know, fintech is, I'd say, one of the three core pillars of what the company is doing from a product perspective. So when I joined, I um, co-founded is the wrong word because many of these pieces, whether it's sales or product, were there already. But I helped organize and then put together and package and stand up a a business called Consensus Codify, standing for commerce and um, decentralized finance. And that faces both large asset managers and institutional investors and, and organizations. And it also faces DeFi, right? So part of the bet is convergence. How do we get large institutional capital to flow into Ethereum? And then how do we get the best innovation out of DeFi to be deployed in sort of like these compliance settings? So that's where the fintech bit comes in. I've always loved um, operating at the frontier and trying to find how the frontier fits into the incumbents. And so that that's the sort of how the role came together and what I'm doing. You penned something pretty interesting in your recent blog about, <laughs> you know, sometimes I think in this space, we often get ahead of our skis. But you wrote, if the crypto ecosystem thinks it will be able to exclusively distribute small business loans or provide universal basic income in a post-COVID world, it is a rude awakening on Libra's launch. PayPal, Square, Intuit, barely eke through. Facebook will crowbar the wedge further in its favor. Binance and Coinbase will need to wait in line. When you juxtapose the crypto world or the decentralized finance world with fintech, can the former compete with the latter in the long term or carve out a important but small niche? Yeah, I um, I hope that they become one and the same. Or maybe, you know, maybe I'm getting old and this is the generational divide. But I really hope that fintech and DeFi become wedded together. So f- for me, fintech was this innovation in the mid 2000s, saying let's take product centric, th- customer centric thinking, and kind of Silicon Valley innovation thinking, and apply it to financial services. And in large part, what this did, consuming hundreds of billions of dollars in venture capital, what that did was 
essentially put financial services into your phone. Uh, sort of the net outcome, right, of digitizing finance has been put things into your phone. And so that's the distribution play. And that's what fintech has been good at. And so that's why Robinhood has a 10 million person audience. That's why, um, you know, Revolut has a big audience. That's why JP Morgan is now offering free trading and Schwab is offering free trading. And that's been the net effect of distribution. But nothing's really changed about the thing that's being distributed. So the bank account you're getting from Monzo or through, take this one, take Chime in the US, and you trace the actual bank account, you know, Chime is worth whatever it is, unicorn status, and then Galileo one step down has been acquired for over a billion uh, by SoFi, and you trace that down and it all lands in a public company called Bancorp, I believe, which has a $300 million market cap and hosts all of the bank accounts for like all of the fintechs and all the prepaid cards. And so for me, the exciting opportunity is to say, how do we manufacture financial products, the equivalent of banking, the equivalent of lending, and so on? Um, how do we manufacture them using decentralized rails so that instead of being a Spotify of CDs, it's, you know, it's a Spotify of digital music instead of being a bunch of facts or, you know, cobalt core banking bank accounts, it is, um, this stuff sits on real programmable chains and is super efficient and interconnected and all these things that we like about DeFi. I guess the, the one thing that worries me is, and again, I don't know if this is just a, you know, a, an experience divide or a generational divide, but I see a lot of folks in DeFi just be very laser targeted towards the day-to-day -day of their industry, right? And And so whether it's the... I mean, these are not small things, but whether it's things like the DeForce hack or or something else and not thinking about the macro environment, I think that's where the disconnect is. So I would love to see DeFi entrepreneurs engage much more deeply with both the fintechs out there and then you know how they can play and win vis-a-vis -vis the other participants. I mean, it's interesting. I feel like this space is often at odds with not only traditional finance, but the burgeoning fintech world, at the end of the day, we're all trying to do similar stuff. That is to say, democratize finance, provide more access. We're going to have to wrap up there, Lex, because I know that you have important fintech-related stuff to do for the rest of the day. But we appreciate you coming on the show and, and walking through Libra and what you're paying attention to at Consensus. And I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate it too. So thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.